you'll join me in Esther chapter 5, you can find that on page 413 in the Blue ESV Bible, Esther chapter 5. The sermon this morning is entitled, Approaching the King, and our key words for our worshipers and training are king, scepter, and throne. Now, it's not a common term anymore, but Gordian knot used to be a part of common parlance. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's used to describe a complex or seemingly unsolvable problem. And the story of the Gordian knot can be tracked back to a legendary chapter in the life of Alexander the Great. As the story goes, in 333 BC, Alexander marched his army into the Phrygian capital of Gordium, which is today the nation of Turkey. And when he got into the city, he came upon an ancient wagon, and the yoke of the wagon was tied up by several complex knots, all so tightly entangled that it was impossible to see how it was all fashioned together. And Phrygian tradition is that the wagon once belonged to Gordius, the father of the celebrated King Midas. An oracle had declared that any man who could unravel this elaborate knot was destined to become the ruler of all of Asia. Well, according to one ancient chronicler, the the headstrong Alexander instantly seized upon his ardent desire to untie the Gordian knot. And after wrestling with this for a time, he found no success. He stepped back from the mass of gnarled ropes and he proclaimed, it makes no difference how they are loosed. And so he drew his sword and he sliced the knot in half with a single stroke. And so the legend goes, the young king was immediately hailed as having outsmarted this ancient puzzle. The same night, Gordium was rocked by a thunder and lightning storm, which Alexander and his men took as a sign, of course, that he had pleased all of the gods. True to the prophecy, he went on to conquer Egypt and large swaths of Asia before he died at the age of 32. Well, today, thanks to the enduring popularity of this Alexander fable, the phrase Gordian knot has entered the lexicon as shorthand for, a, uh, for an intricate or nearly impossible problem or obstacle to overcome. One of the earliest appearances came in Shakespeare's play, Henry V. One of the characters was praised for being able to unloosen the Gordian knot of politics. Likewise, the saying, cutting the Gordian knot, is now commonly used to describe creative or uh, decisive solutions to seemingly insurmountable problems. So if you've never heard of it before, now you have something to add to your compendium of terms that you can use, and you can tell people what it means and sort of pass it off like you always knew it. Well, last week in the story of Esther, we ended with something of a Gordian knot. If you haven't been following along with us, I hope you'll take some time and read chapters 1 through 4 in the book of Esther. It is a fascinating story. It is really exciting all throughout. I I can't give all the details here, but we do have to keep in mind a few of the facts of the story as we press on today. Now remember, Haman, the Agagite, was made second in command by King Ahasuerus, and 
The man Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who was appointed to a position at the king's gate, he refused to bow down to Haman whenever he was in his presence. Mordecai, of course, was a Jew, and the Jews and the Agagites or the Amalekites were bitter enemies. And so upon hearing that Mordecai the Jew would not bow down to him, Haman was enraged. He was fueled by his anger. And he declared and went to the king and got uh, permission to round up all of the Jews, all the men, all the women, all of the children, and on the same day in all of the Persian Empire, the Jews were to be destroyed. Remember, King Ahasuerus gave him a signet ring and the decree went out into the entire empire and every province, every person had heard that the Jews would be destroyed. Haman was seeking to commit a genocide of the Jewish people, among whom, unknown to anybody up until this point, was Queen Esther herself. Now, the city is in confusion. The Jews were all rightly terrified. And Mordecai sought to make something happen to remedy the problem. So he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he gets word to Esther as to what is going on. Now remember, although she was in the king's palace, Esther really had no idea what was going on. She hadn't even seen the king himself for the last 30 days. Well, eventually, through her servants, Mordecai is able to convince Esther that she needs to do something. She needs to go to the king and plead on behalf of the Jewish people, and Mordecai tells her those now very famous words, who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And and remember, last week we saw that Esther reminded Mordecai that even though she's queen, she can't simply walk into the presence of the king. Unless he lowers his scepter for her to approach, she will be killed. But then Mordecai reminds her that there's no way out of this for her, that even if she doesn't do this now, eventually, as all the Jews are rounded up, she eventually will be too, and she will be killed by royal decree. It's now or never. And so Esther concludes, also very famous words, I will do it, and if I perish, I perish. In other words, she had resigned herself to the fact that she was going to do the impossible, And it was very likely that she was going to die in doing so. So what happens? How is it that Esther is going to cut this Gordian knot? We begin with our first heading in verses 1 through 8. Trusting in God's sovereignty does not mean that we sit idly. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. 
So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now this chapter opens with those words on the third day, and you'll recall from chapter 4, they were all fasting. So this is on the third day of the fast in preparation for Esther approaching the king. So after her three-day fast, Esther dresses in her royal best, and she presents herself expecting to, to die, honestly, but against what seemed impossible odds, she won the king's favor. And she shows up, and you get the idea that he's in the throne room, and he sort of sees out in the doorway that Esther is standing there dressed, and he lowers his scepter, which she knows is the sign that she can approach him. Now, why is it that he allowed her to approach? Nobody really knows. My own assumption is, from what we've seen of King Ahasuerus at this point, when he saw a beautiful woman, he had a hard time saying no. And we'll see that as he interacts with her as we go along. Now, the good news is that Esther lives, but the Gordian knot is still not cut. The bigger threat wasn't just to Esther, but the entire Jewish community. And so living through the first step is just that. It is just a step in a bigger plan. The, the destruction of the Jews had now become a decree, a law of the Medes and the Persians, which we've talked about before, according to custom, could not be changed. It would take all of Esther's skill and all of her subtlety to unpick this knot. She was going to have to take a backdoor approach to solve this problem. And approaching the king was only the beginning, and in fact, we learned that that was probably the easy part. Well, it seems obvious that Esther doesn't quite trust the king. Notice he tells her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. And at this point, any reader would expect Esther to say, well, you see, it's this guy, Haman, and his decree. I need you to put an end to that. But that's not what she does. In fact, until you know the rest of the story, there's really no way to understand why she did the thing that she did instead. The lives of all of her people hang in the balance, and she says, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So the king offers up half of his kingdom. He tells her essentially that her wish is his command, and her response is, come to a feast and bring your lieutenant with you. It's an odd request, it seems. But we have to think about why she would take a backdoor approach other than to just tell him what it was that was bothering her. Remember, she's going to be asking for an irrevocable law to be reversed, and it isn't a law that's been on the books for years and years that uh, the king inherited and didn't really know why. It is something that was decreed by King Ahasuerus' right-hand man, and it was stamped with King Ahasuerus' signet, signet ring. And so don't forget, also, there was a tremendous amount of money involved in all of this. The king would lose face because this is his official edict. He would look like he wasn't in control. He would look like he was confused and confusing. And of course, after all of this, 
Esther would have to make known her own Jewish identity, which, if it didn't go well, the king could be very angry at because she had been deceiving him for all these many years. So when we think about this, don't let it escape your mind that the reality of all of what Mordecai is asking Esther to do is nearly impossible. This isn't going to just happen, but we've seen time and time again, despite their prayerlessness, despite their manipulation of events, and from all indications, their apparent denial of, Jew, of their Jewishness, God is still looking out for his people. But Esther really is in no position spiritually herself, and of course she had no indication from God that she would receive any divine assistance. Instead, she would have to follow the best strategy that she could come up with. And in doing so, she's relying on God, whether she realizes it or not, to make an effective change in the king's heart. So the workaround Esther thinks would be best is to invite her husband and his sidekick to the feast that she arranged. And of course, Ahasuerus kindly receives the invitation. And in verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, just think about this. Remember back in chapter 1, Ahasuerus was concerned about a feminist takeover of the empire. It's the very reason why he got rid of Queen Vashti and Esther came to be the queen. But now he is right here like putty in Esther's hand. He's doing whatever she asks offering her whatever she wants, and he's bringing his best man along for the ride. So much for his earlier decree that every man should be the master of his own house. And then again in verse 6, he asks Esther, what is your wish? And once again, he promises to give her half of his kingdom. What's going on? Well, obviously, Ahasuerus knows that the queen wasn't just approaching the throne for no reason. He'd never summoned her to come. He knew the risk involved with her coming to him. These are rules that he lives by. And so while he may be dumb, and let's be clear, he is kind of a dumb king, he was smart enough to know that there must be something going on that she was willing to risk her life to come and speak to him. So once again, it seems to be a prime opportunity for Esther to approach him with her request. The wine was flowing, the king was being generous, he was offering up half of his kingdom. It seemed to be a prime opportunity here. Why didn't she jump? Why didn't she just tell him what was up? Instead, she invites them to another feast tomorrow. Verse 8, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. What's going on here? Maybe she got cold feet. I knew a guy one time who set up three different opportunities to ask his girlfriend to marry him, and each time they went out on a date, he had everything set just right, and every time he was too nervous and couldn't do it. Eventually it worked out, they're married, but, but maybe it was something like that. Maybe she got right up to the point, right on the edge, he asked her what she wanted, and she couldn't seal the deal. I don't think that's the case. More than likely, Esther is playing the man. She knows how he is, and we see that even in the ways that she addresses him. Notice twice she says, if it pleases the king... 
Or she also says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king. We've seen that language among the king's servants already. It puts all of it in his court, and it makes him feel powerful. It makes him feel like he has all of uh, the right to make the call here. She's dangling the bait in front of him, and he's following after it because he's hungry to know what she is after. But she presents it all so that he thinks that he's in control of everyone's fate. It was a brilliant move on Esther's part. And since all, she was, uh, all that she was overtly requesting the king to do was to show up to a feast the next day, it's hard to see how the king would have refused her invitation. It was pretty simple. This is all the more true since the purpose of the feast was to do as the king had said, to reveal to him what it is that she's requesting. Curiosity alone would keep him from running away from her request. And here's the brilliance of all of this on Esther's part. If the king comes tomorrow, he implicitly agrees in advance to grant her request to fulfill what she is asking. And if he tries to back out, he's going to lose face even more because he has already repeated his promise, not once, but twice, that he will give her whatever she asks. It seems that Esther has laid her plans well. She has executed them with patience and care. Now, all that now remains in this desperate game of chess was to wait until the pieces were in exactly the right position before making the decisive move that would checkmate Haman. It might still be a long shot, but she's done everything that she could do in her power to give her the best chance for success. So you see, Esther's delay isn't fear, it's not cold feet, it isn't passivity, it is shrewdness. Sometimes in our lives we get into very difficult circumstances, we get into trying times, we get where we don't know what to do in situations, they seem like a Gordian knot, so our response is often to do nothing at all. And we often want to chalk that up to, uh, I'm just trusting in God, when in reality we're letting our fear control us, and, and we may be actually passive or lazy. And, and we're, we're saying we're trusting in God, And in fact, we're not trusting in God because we won't do anything. Listen, we're not being holier because we just decide to sit and see how things go. There's nothing godly about being a fatalist. There's nothing godly about having an attitude that whatever happens, happens, so we're just going to watch the world go by and never try to do anything to make our situation any better. So just in the same way that you lock your doors at night and you don't cross the road without looking both ways, we need not look at our circumstances and just say, well, it is what it is. No, we need to do something. And don't just do something. Do do something in a way that is wise. And sometimes we're called to be shrewd. Remember in, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's a shrewdness that is commendable and godly. I think Jesus is probably his most difficult of all of his parables, but I think also one of the most important is that of the shrewd manager in Luke chapter 16. I've preached a sermon on that parable before, so you can go and listen to it if it's not clear to you what that is all about. But the point of the parable that Jesus draws out for the children of God is oftentimes they don't act like they're children of God. 
Instead of being shrewd according to the principles of the kingdom of God, they're missing it altogether. They're not being clever or wise with the resources they have, or they're not using the resources they have wisely or well for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus' whole point was to show that in the, people, in the people of the world, the people that are not a part of the kingdom of God, but the people of the world are far better at playing the game within their worldly system of thinking than are the people of God at working within the rules of their kingdom. So Jesus wasn't making an ethical point. He was saying, listen, you Christians, you have the power and sovereignty of God behind you. You have all the resources of the world at hand to bring about greater ends for the sake of the kingdom. So use them. Don't just sit around and hope nothing ha- or something will happen to make it all better. Do something. See how it turns out once you've wisely and craftily done what you need to do. It's not a bad thing to be shrewd when we apply the principles of Scripture. And that can look like a lot of things. That, that, that can, there's a lot of ways that that plays out. I think one of the more important implications that we find in the text here and the way that it's playing out in the book of Esther is that there is a wise, there is a shrewd way that Christians can use the resources of power, that Christians can use the resources of government to our benefit. And they can enable us. Now, last week, I criticized Mordecai for only depending on the power of the king to bring about the desired ends because Mordecai wasn't prayerful. Remember, his only resolution was not to trust God, but it was exactly the opposite. It was to trust in kings and horses, which the Bible tells us explicitly not to do. But Christians often swing to the other side of the pendulum altogether, and we might say, well, God is sovereign over everything. And so, whoever is in control, I have no power over that. I have no say in that. Whoever is my senator, I have nothing to do with that. Whatever laws they pass, I have no control over. So, I'm not going to concern myself with any of it. None of it matters. They're going to do what they're going to do. I'm not going to be involved. So, voting is useless. Paying attention to politics is useless. Having an opinion about any of this is useless. But Paul didn't do that, did he? Paul asserted his rights as a Roman citizen, so he wasn't unfairly treated in a kangaroo court. And there should be Christians in high offices and nations, people who are decision and and policy makers. And as Christians, we should shrewdly do what we can to utilize the resources at our disposal to bring about the most favorable ends for the sake of the kingdom. Listen, it is good and right that Christians lobby the power brokers of society to take action, to protect things like freedom of speech and the expression of ideas for men and women because those are gospel issues. It's good and right that we should pursue an end to abortion through legal means. It's good and appropriate that we should want more monetary resources to be kept for ourselves, that we can use them for kingdom purposes. It's good and right that we should want the freedom to assemble freely preserved. And the things that will happen if Christians simply sit back and say that we, we're only concerned, I'm only worried about preaching the gospel. Well, of course we're worried about preaching the gospel, but there's a lot of things that go into that and our ability to do that with freedom. 
And that's a good thing, and we should want to preserve that all that we can for as long as it can last for the sake of the kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, we have more freedom as Christians in Western civilization today than anyone has ever had in the history of the world. And if we just sort of have a passive attitude, and we don't work to preserve and protect those things, they'll be taken away. And our ability to preach the gospel will be shut down. We can't just have a passive attitude about that. We can't just pretend like none of that matters. We can't be fatalists. Yes, Christians should hold public offices. Yes, Christians should run for political positions. The reality is there aren't many who are truly genuine Christians, and when that becomes the norm, what should we expect to happen? In the kind of national government that we have, we are in positions to affect change. We are in positions to take office and fight for truth that wouldn't exist in other environments. So it is shrewd and it is wise to take advantage of that reality like we see Esther doing here. God is commending that. God is calling us to that. That doesn't mean we all become shills for political parties. It doesn't mean that we become uh, outspoken supporters of certain candidates. It doesn't mean the church's efforts become political. But it does mean that we have a voice and that we use it when it is best. It means that we utilize the resources that God has given us to make sure that we continue to have an opportunity to preach the gospel, to preach Christ and Him crucified freely and as often as possible. Esther understood the implications of that, and so she risked her life to do it. Mordecai understood the implications of that. And even though there's no indication throughout the entire story that they were acknowledging anything of God's sovereignty through all of it, it's very clear that he was at work in all of the details. I mean, if you just look at the timing of things, the, the creativity of things, the, the brilliance even in how the king is, is being addressed to appeal to his sensibilities, everything we see. God in the midst, even though he's never mentioned in the text. The Lord is in the midst of it all. Well, let's press on. Secondly, in verses 9 through 14, we see that arrogance and anger always lead to hatred and destruction. Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all of the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited to her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Well, we could call this part of the story Haman's very good and awful day. (laughs) 
We see both of these things going on, right? It starts off wonderfully. He's leaving the feast. He's jumping for joy, but it also goes south very quickly. Just look at the man's ego. Can you imagine being in that room with him? It seems unbearable. He's feeling so important. His ego is all puffed up. He is, he is completely full of himself. Verse 9 says he was joyful and glad of heart, but then one glance of Mordecai, and it says Haman was filled with wrath. You see, Mordecai saw Haman, and he didn't budge even a pinky at the slightest glance. Everyone else bowed down, and Mordecai resumed what he was doing. And, and so just like that, he went from a, he, uh, Haman went from having a wonderful, marvelous day to being filled with rage. But somehow, he was able to keep his composure and go home. And when he does, he did the only thing he could think to do to calm himself down. And he calls all of his friends and his wife together so he can let out all his blustery bravado. Notice verse 10, he even, he even called, uh, as he calls them to himself, he, he's telling them how rich he was and, and how many kids he has and how the king loves him and how much power he's been given and how even the queen recognizes him alongside the king by name, but nobody else is involved in that. I mean, it's almost painful to read this. It's, it's somewhat humorous. I cannot imagine being in his presence for all of this. One time, Felicia and I were at dinner at a place, and there was a man sitting at a table next to us, and he spoke loud enough for everyone in the room to hear what was going on, and he talked about how much money he had and, and the people he was with. If they wanted a donation for their charity, they just needed to ask him and tell him how much, and he would write the check, and how he drives nice cars all the time, and how he's recognized as a top doctor in his field, and on and on and on and on. If you know anything about the me monster. He was the man. It's an uncomfortable situation for anybody to be in to hear someone talking about themselves in this way. Matthew Henry wrote, note, self-admirers and self-flatterers are really self-deceivers. Haman pleased himself with the fancy that the queen, by his repeated invitation, designed to honor him, whereas really she designed to accuse him, and in calling him to the banquet, but did call him to the bar. What magnifying glasses do proud men look at their faces in, and how does the pride of their heart deceive them? We have the benefit of knowing the whole story, and I hope you've read the whole story. So if you've read Esther before, you know that what she does doesn't turn out well for Haman in the end. He's about to get caught, as the saying goes, with his pants down. But for now, for now, he thinks he's someone. He thinks he's special. He is, uh, in, in, another, uh, in another sort of turn of phrase, he's drinking his own bathwater. He's really excited about himself, and the only way he knows to calm his rage is to talk about how important he is. It's as if Obadiah 3 was written for him. It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. But you see, none of this, 
None of this so-called greatness is enough for Haman because Mordecai yet lives. We see that in verse 13. His hatred is strong, and his wife and his friends are sort of tired of hearing about all of it, so they tell him, stop complaining and do something. Haman, hang him high. He's being a braggart. He's moping around. They don't want that to continue. So the best thing they can do is tell him to handle his business. You have some power. The king will do whatever you say. Hang him 50 cubits high. Now, so you know, that's about 75 feet in the air. Think about that. That's about a six-story building. It's like she's saying, ask the king. We know he's going to say yes. And then you can go for tomorrow's banquet happy. Let's just get this over with. Make a spectacle of that Jew who won't honor you. Get him up there so high that everyone can see him and you can leave and you can be happy and you can relax and have a great time at your little party. Notice how the chapter ends. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. What a tragic indictment on Haman. He's a case study for us of what happens when our heart, the, the idols of our hearts are challenged. When Haman made known what was going on in his heart, he revealed his idol. And as a result, when Mordecai challenges that idol, he lashes out in rage. His arrogance and his anger are all building up, and eventually they're going to turn from hatred to his own destruction. Even though he still possessed unparalleled power in the kingdom, it wasn't enough. He wanted more. There was a void in the center of his life that no amount of success was ever going to fill. And, and Haman was really not someone, we, as we read the story, we're not prone to feel sorry for him. Yet at this moment in the story, he's really crying out for someone to guide him and, and to give him some direction on how he should handle these overpowering negative responses to things. Haman needed help. Haman needed a wise, uh, biblically-minded person to sit with him and explain to him how these things are to be handled differently. And all of us can identify with this, can't we? All of us have times when we need wise, biblical counsel. We need others to poke at our hearts and to challenge the issues of our hearts so that we don't grow angry and arrogant to where it becomes hatred and destruction. Instead of being like his wife and his friends, a wise counselor would tell Haman to consider why it is that, that Mordecai has made him so angry. Why is he seeking to fill this void in his life with the praise of men? The most faithful biblical counselor would point Haman to Christ. It would say, Haman, you know why you're angry? You're angry because you're trying to be your own God and you want everyone else around you to recognize you as God. You want them to bow down to you. You want them to do everything you tell them to do in the way you tell them to do it. And in the end, you want to know that you have power to get your own way. And brothers and sisters, all of us on some level, we live our lives that way. When we get angry, we most often are angry because other people are not doing what we want them to do for us. That's what our anger is. When you are not serving me, because all of us have a view that there, the world is a uh, uh, full-featured motion picture and we are the main character and everyone else is playing a supporting role. And I'm the one who's up for the Oscar, not you, so you need to do what I ask you to do in order that I can win. And so we're never fulfilled because we're chasing after the wrong things. What we need is Christ. 
What we need is the one who has lived a life, the one who the world really is all revolving around, the one who came and lived and died in our place on our behalf. You and I are never going to live lives that in and of themselves are going to bring all of the peace and joy that we're longing after. Only Christ. Christ who lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve as sinners on our behalf, and has been raised again. And if Haman had gotten that counsel to look to Christ and not to himself, perhaps he would have saved his own life. If indeed he'd be willing to turn from his idols and and turn to the true and living God. It didn't, nothing of that nature came about for Haman, but it could for you if you are not in Christ. And the Lord calls you to believe on Christ, to repent of your sins, to follow after Him. You know, our hearts face the same temptations to bow down to idols, to look at ourselves as being greater than we truly are, and to let our anger and our arrogance to transform into hatred, and that eventually destroys us. What is it? Think about it. What makes you most angry and why? I guarantee at the center of that is you. You not getting what you want. And that is a clue that one of our idols is being threatened. What is, it, what is it that makes us feel an unusually strong sense of achievement in life? It may be that one of our idols is being stroked. Our strong emotions are clues enabling us to read our own hearts better. And we, we can't counsel Haman, of course, but certainly we can counsel ourselves and others who find ourselves in these kinds of turmoil. Turn to Christ. All of our anxieties all of our turmoil in our souls, all of our anger, all of our arrogance, all of it is answered in Jesus Christ so we can approach the one true king. The now and forever king, not with fear, but with confidence. You see, unlike Ahasuerus, the Lord, our king, Jesus, he summons us to come. His scepter is lowered for us to come and to touch. We can approach the king without fear, without fear of death, but with confidence and with hope and with joy. He will not cast you away. He will not send you out. And only when you do, only when you approach the King of Kings, will you find an end to all of your idols, will you find the joy you're seeking after, will you find hope for your future, will you find confidence in all the trials that surround you. And so, brothers and sisters, the call from the Word today is that we would confidently and joyfully approach the King. And one of the great things that we get to do as a